Well, I'm now joined by Graham Phillips. And Graham Phillips, you might know, he's quite big on Twitter. Somebody I came across because his tweets are amazing and he's got a really good mind uh, and a lot of knowledge as well. He's known as a pharmacist that gave up drugs. And there's a real narrative behind that. So, hi, Graham. Welcome to UK Low Carb. Hi, Dan. Delighted to uh, catch up with you. Thanks for having Brilliant. me. Brilliant. I've wanted you on the show now for a long time. So it's a great honour for me that you are here. And do you want to just describe the title that you have there, the pharmaceutical gave up drugs, because that tells you a lot of your story right there, doesn't it? It does in a sense. And it's quite interesting, isn't it? All the people in this space, whether you talk to, say, Tim Noakes, or you talk to Asim Mahotra, David Unwin, we all have our own individual stories. And we've all been, if you like, as health professionals, inculcated in the received wisdom. The received wisdom being, you know, the Ansel Keys related stuff that, you know, just um, eat a little less and move a little more, fat makes you fat, etc. And we've all had our own individual health journeys. And we've all known the science, followed the science, and thought, actually, this isn't working for me. And I reached a certain point to give you my life courses. I was a fat kid and I was a fat kid when all the kids were slim. Now, of course, all the kids are fat and almost none of the kids are slim. And that is a story all of its own, isn't it? In what? A generation or so. And the fatter I got, the hungrier I got, the hungrier I got, the fatter I got. And yes, I, for a period of time by, you know, starving myself and exercising like crazy I could lose the weight and then I put it back on again but I was following all the received advice so can I just ask when you were a child with that weight issue um, were you alone in your family with that or were there other children with the same thing and what was your family's reaction or is this kind of well well, we're Jewish right and uh, of course the center of everything you know every Jew will will have this story to tell you know uh, they tried to kill us they failed let's eat (laughs) <laughs> and every every Jew has a version of that, right? right? So food is very, very central. And it tends to be uh, peasant food. So because most of Jewish culture, European Jewish culture is Polish culture. So it tended to be very nourishing, cheap, tasty food. Right. Uh, which was fine when you're, you know, plowing the fields or whatever, but not kind of quite so appropriate when you were much less active. I see. So we tended to eat tasty, stodgy. We didn't drink very much, but we tended to eat tasty, stodgy, high-carb food. Right. And was there, like, a weight issue in your family with anyone else of generations? Yeah. So, um, yeah, my my parents are both quite podgy. I wasn't obese. But you know that thing on the football line when they're choosing the football team? Oh, the painful moment that was for me. Yeah. I was always the kid that was chosen last. On a really good day, I'd be the one before last. Right, and Graham, I was, I, I was the same. They put me in the goal because I literally physically blocked the goal. <laughs> but, you know. Let's make our own football teams and we'll choose each other. Like, yeah. okay, because I was in the same boat and, yeah, more for them, I say. But I know what you mean. Not standing out as the athlete and the group, yeah. So my life course was struggling with my weight. And yes, every so often I could lose a weight by starving myself and exercising like crazy. And then... I was just really lucky. I saw Michael Moses' original Horizon program, Eat Less, move, um, uh, Eat Fast, and Live Longer. Mm-hmm. And basically it was what we now know as the 5-2 diet, which is calorie restriction two days a week and eat normally the rest. And I thought, I can do that. And it was easy. And I did the 5-2 diet for a short period of time and I lost 10 kilos. Wow, brilliant. And then I thought, hang about, I'm a... I'm both a scientist and a health professional. I need to understand what's going on here because it isn't what I thought it was. And that led me to a five-year exploration of what is the actual science? What is the evidence behind all of this? And then you get involved in, you know, the keto diet and the low carb and the high, and all of this debate. And then over time, you start to find other people who've been on the same journey, you know, the the Tim Noakes, the Professor Unwins, all of these things. And I then, the the one thing about a pharmacy degree is it's a really fundamental life science degree. So you you learn microbiology, you learn cellular biology, you you learn biochemistry, you learn electron transport chains, you learn how, you know, things work at the atomic and subatomic level. 
Which, by the way, I just want to say to the listeners, uh, Graham is trying to, ex- well, I say he was trying, he was doing a very good job of explaining that to me before we came on. And the complexity is just unbelievable, but it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Um, everything is more complicated than you, than you think. And I, I think that's another fundamental point we might get to, which is there are no simple solutions to complex problems. And humans are very, very complex, multicellular organisms without even, we haven't started about the microbiome. Yeah. Um, so there aren't simple one size fits all solutions. It would be nice to say there are, and that's why much as I'm low carb, it's always more complicated than that. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. so I realized that there was a solution. I lost all this weight and it wasn't about exercising more. It wasn't particularly about calories. So what was it? And I started a re-exploration of the fundamentals of the long-term conditions that we all worry about, right? So as a health professional, like all health professionals, my background training was identify symptoms and treat the symptoms with drugs. The doctors are much better at the symptoms and the pharmacists are much better at the drugs. Mm -hmm. If you've got the pharmacist and the doctor working together, it's great, isn't it? Except it's not, because what are we not trained in? We're not trained in anything to do with sleep or exercise or nutrition. Right. So we get the received wisdom of what's out there on all of that and just don't challenge it. So it's almost like you have this whole body of information, which is just, that's just there. You don't even get to question it, look at it, just accept it as truth. And then your little niche, you are so expert in that it kind of doesn't always, I suppose, relate to what you're being told as received wisdom, right? There's There's a conflict there somewhere where things don't add up. When you start to think about it, there is... But it's a bit like gravity, right? Gravity just is. Yeah. You're not going to say I have to reprove gravity every time I walk upstairs. You just yeah. accept it. And it's it's like gravity that we are just accepting that. Eat less, move more, fat makes you fat. And we're all born into this milieu of what we call chronic disease or long-term conditions. And almost no health professionals know this. But if you go back 120, 130 years, diabetes, dementia, cancer, cardiovascular disease didn't exist. I mean, there were literally almost no cases. And then people say, yeah, well, we know that, silly, because everyone died age 35. And that's not true either. Not true, not true. On average, people die 35 and 40, but behind that is a whole lot more complexity, which is this. There was a huge number of deaths uh, in neonates, the newborn. The rate of death in under fives was huge. And there were lots of deaths in childbirth. Yeah. If you survived till the age of 20, your life expectancy 120 years ago may not have been that different to a 20-year-old now. Which is interesting because Dr. David Unwin and I were talking about this. And because my background is archaeology, we we're talking about the Paleolithic. And yeah. I said life expectancy was around 30 to 40, whatever. And he said, no, same as you were just saying, take out the deaths in uh, childbirth, take out the infant mortality. And actually you're looking at much more like 70 years of age. And Absolutely. then that changes your perspective completely then, Sonny, doesn't it? About how long people were living from as long as they got through childbirth or they got through their own birth and then in childhood. So long as they survived childbirth, they weren't killed by famine and they weren't killed by an infection, they could live into their 70s and 80s. Yeah. And they didn't get, they didn't die of the things that we die of. They basically died of of healthy old age. So now though, our paradigm is so different, right? Because you know what, like they tell teachers now in classrooms that they're supposed to identify children with weight problems and talk to their parents. But that's difficult when you've got a class with kind of a lot of children who are bigger. And the norm seems to be that we are bigger now. And of course, we haven't evolved differently in, in 20, 30 years, have we? It's a bit like I was looking at climate change uh, pictures from space. Actually, I'm going to show you, show you this at some point if you're interested. Yeah, and basically, you can have a look at landscapes which have changed drastically within a very short period of time. But if you're born now, you might, without that knowledge, assume that's just how it's always been without realizing it has changed. And we're like that now, would you say, in our paradigm? That's exactly the point. So I was born into this milieu of uh, chronic disease and it just gets worse. And we are not equipped with the tools. We're given none of the natural history of it. So none of 
so uh, you know as soon as you say to a health professional it didn't exist 120 years ago they're like no that's that can't be i'd know about that wouldn't i well yes. no, yeah. you were never taught it and then they'll say yeah but everyone died age 35 because we all know that and then they'll if you say well actually a lot of people lived to their 70s and 80s and didn't have cancer and dementia you have to really start thinking about you know it makes you fundamentally re-explore everything and you start have to start again and so I went back and started again in terms of my understanding of what drives chronic disease. And of course, you come to a completely different conclusion that probably healthy longevity is, there's a debate whether it's 10 or 20% genetic. Let's just settle at 15% because I'm not yeah. equipped to argue precisely, right? So 80 to 90% of healthy longevity is lifestyle. No one knows this. No yeah. one knows this. It's massive. Um, yeah. And then you think, okay, right. So what about life started driving this? Can I identify it? Turns out you can. Can I do something about it? Hell yes. Yeah. And you should. And I became very senior in my profession. I actually helped establish the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, which is the Royal College for Pharmacy. My pharmacy group won pretty much every pharmacy, local and national pharmacy award, most of them twice. Um, I became a fellow of the Pharmaceutical Society, which is the highest award the profession, anyone in my profession can gain. Brilliant. I've had a fabulous, fabulous professional career. But ultimately, I ended in frustration because I thought, well, we're spooning more and more tablets into people. People only ever get worse. And it would be OK. You know, we say prevention is better than cure. Would it be OK if we were curing? We're not. So... Yeah. Actually, what the drugs do is they suppress the symptoms. What do so, I mean? so we're just going through that then, because yeah, I want to yeah. break this down a bit. Because, oh. okay, so it seems like Dr. Asima Hotra, Dr. Unwin have got a similar experience. But I suppose a pharmacist at that level, not in hospital or labs, but in an in actual pharmacy practice, it's a bit like a GP, right? You get to know the same families, the same individuals over their whole lives. So you get to see them from they're born to when they grow up or whatever else. Uh, and you get to see the whole thing, don't you? The whole picture. I love it. I, I, I've sold it now, but I had this pharmacy in the wonderful village of Wheat Hampstead. Hi, Wheat Hampstead, if you're listening. And I could walk up the high street, right? And I knew the name of the grandparents, the name of the children, wow. the name of the dog, and I knew the size of their hemorrhoids. <laughs> the dog's hemorrhoids? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily, right? That's the relationship that you get. And it's, it's fabulous. That's why it's called yeah. community pharmacy. Yeah, and I, you know, at its best, it's it's a fabulous, fabulous uh, profession to be in. It's been a an absolute honour, but I, I wasn't really helping people in the way that, as a fresh-faced young pharmacist, I set out to do. And so you're seeing people just becoming prisoner to these conditions for the whole of their lives, and you know you're not going to make them better with your drugs. You're just going to suppress the symptom, yeah. which is always there. But this is the thing I think is interesting. So you wouldn't have necessarily known much about metabolic syndrome at that time, would you? Would you have, would you have seen each condition as a separate thing? So my I, I would have never heard the term metabolic syndrome. I'd have certainly known the term hypertension, diabetes, cancer, dementia, and all the rest. And my understanding of these, and all the autoimmune diseases, of course, and my understanding would have been that these are individual separate diseases that we treat individually and separately and specifically with a very evidence-based way with the drugs in order to get the best possible benefit for the patient at the lowest cost to the NHS with the minimum of side effects. And that is the specialism that pharmacists have. Yeah, I see. Sure. And what was there a moment then that you then decided enough's enough, I've got to look for another way? Or was this a gradual, slow burn you, thing? You, you can really thank Michael Mosley and that Horizon programme. Right. But that made me restart my journey and challenge everything I thought I knew and want to really understand where is all this coming from and can I do something different about it? I've always been fascinated by public health. So people think about community pharmacy as somewhere they get their prescription, but actually there's a whole national network which I was involved in establishing called Healthy Living Pharmacy. Right. And you can also view community pharmacy network as a public health network, highly accessible, um, and to give you but one example, when smoking cessation was first available, it was a private service. It was back in the Thatcher era. Right. And 
Thatcher's view of smoking was that you paid the price. It was your own fault for smoking and the NHS would have nothing to do with it. So the NHS had no commitment towards smoking cessation. So I introduced and was passionate about smoking cessation. That was my big first public health intervention. And actually, it's been an incredible success. So when um, in the Blair years, they brought smoking cessation into the NHS, I trained the local GPs in smoking cessation and not the other way around. Right, I see. Because so my that, point is I've always been fascinated by public health. And but, but what an interesting argument, though, because I just suddenly realised that applies to the food industry, right? So if governments think, as they, I think they do generally in America, that you deregulate, you let the food industry do what it wants, but actually the cost is, is then taken up later with the healthcare system. And, and in our country, as one that's actually funded by us, the taxpayer, we can't afford that, can we? It's costing us a fortune to eat this way. It, look, my philosophy would be the following, right? to encourage people to eat healthy food and let's be honest healthy food is more expensive when you can feed a family for a pound or a pizza from from iceland or whatever what are they going to do Mm. so i firmly believe that where people are um, not able to afford healthy food we should subsidize it and people say what's a bit nanny state and i'm going to say okay so when they get to 50 and 60 and they've got all these long-term conditions and we spend incredible fortunes on drugs that don't actually solve the problem. They probably add a few years of not very good quality life, actually, which yeah. gives society a greater bang for its buck. And I would turn the whole thing on its head and I'd invest in lifestyle medicine. That's a great idea. You know what? As a teacher, uh, previously as a teacher, I've seen this firsthand where, you know, there's some kids who there's one kid in particular I've got in my mind. And I actually saw him a few years after he left school as well. Um, but I won't say his name, obviously. But I remember this kid was having a few ups and downs. It wasn't going too well for him. And so, you know, we're just trying to find out what we could do to help him. It then turned out that I, I think it was, you know, a problem in the family a bit generally. But he was eating McDonald's almost every day. Yeah. He was having monster high energy drinks uh, several times a day as well. This kid was on a high processed food diet, effectively. And it was very nasty sort of chemical sort of things. You looked at the ingredients. And I thought, this poor lad... He's really going to feel this, isn't he? When he is kind of, you know, trying to grow up and his brain's developing and he's got all these chemicals going around. How can that be good for him? Well, it's, it's interesting. So um, my, not my kids, but my partner's kids are starting to have their own children now. And um, um, Karen, my partner's daughter, um, her baby is, is just about to start nursery. So she said, okay, so I'll bring the baby just to nursery just to get him sort of acclimatised for it. And uh, what what will you give him for breakfast? And they said, Cheerios. And I was right. really proud of her because she said, oh, no, you won't. Yeah, that's not food. That's not food. And so I'll, you know, when the baby goes to nursery, he won't be having your food. We'll send, we'll send food in. Yeah. Because, you know, if you can start with the children at that level, then you don't have to get to my stage of starting having all these long-term conditions and fighting with them and struggling with your weight your whole life. We, let's start at that point. Yeah, and you know the problem is if you're because I've got two young kids, if they start eating rubbish as a one-off, it's very tempting for them. They want it again and again and again. It's it's you know these foods are, in my opinion, addictive, and I think they'll be made in a certain way to make them addictive. So we can talk about the bliss point then, which I'm sure you're aware of. Um, but for your listeners, there a lot of these foods are actually designed in a science laboratory, and they are that perfect combination of fat uh, and salt and sugar that achieves something called the bliss point. And that's the point at which this food does take off. Um, And and the authority on this, I think, is probably Robert Lustig. I certainly recommend anything by him on this subject. He's got this wonderful uh, video and a book about the hacking of the American mind. And he goes beyond food into technology. But the point is this. These bliss point foods spike your dopamine. And your dopamine pathways are the same pathways as the cocaine pathway. Wow. I'm not saying that they're as addictive as cocaine, but it's the same neural pathway. Yeah. And we all know that the problem with cocaine is you need more and more and more to get to high. feel. Yeah. And then you need more and more just to be normal. Yeah. Yeah. And the example I give, I love Doritos, right? I just love Doritos. And, you know, if, if we were sitting here chatting and there was a sack full of Doritos, and I do mean a sack, <laughs> by the end of us sitting and having a chat for an hour, I'd have consumed the entire sack full. 
because I can never get enough and they're never satiating. Yeah. And it is absolutely addictive. And it's just as it's just the same as the cigarette industry giving the American was it the American uh, soldiers as they returned from the war, giving that. And that's why, oh, the other example I picked recently was Krispy Kreme donuts. Um, and Asim and I had a real go about this. The Krispy Kreme donuts, I think, gave a thousand donuts to the staff yes, of the NHS Trust as they came off the COVID wards. And, you know, we both went, had a bit of a go at Krispy Kreme about that. And, and everyone said, oh, yeah, this is nanny state and bloody, bloody blah. If um, Marlboro cigarettes had donated a thousand cigarettes to the local hospital to calm the staff as they came off the wards, there would have been an absolute outcry, wouldn't they? I mean, you couldn't imagine it. Yeah, you can't imagine that at but all. Tell yeah. me what the difference is, because I for sure can't see a difference. Yeah. Bliss point foods, addicted. Yeah. You know what? I think it's true. Apart from milk, you don't get a combination of those three macronutrients together just provided by nature. You know, it's only through our processing, our cooking, we put them together, but you don't get high fat, high sugar and high salt things all in the same thing. I guess the salt is probably not in milk, but that's just something that as humans, we've found out what we want. And so we've made it for ourselves. And then our body said, this is amazing. We don't get this normally. Let's go for more. Come on, guys. You know, and it's, it's a very natural response. It's something that we haven't had for millions of years, isn't it? designed in a laboratory precisely to have that effect and it works so let's go into that then because this is the way i think from our conversation before i describe this as like the chemical orchestra which is our bodies and and you, your knowledge of this is amazing and i think it's like any topic you think you understand a little bit and then you just go beneath the surface and there's a whole new world there so just can we just talk about what happens then when i eat that donut and it goes into my body what is happening to me but at a cellular level as well, what damage are we doing? And also, I know you said about things like donuts with oils and the seed oils, etc. What effect are these things having on our bodies? Sure. So that's so. I kind of think that we should first of all let's look at the at the dopamine pathway. So you get this hit of dopamine, um, the same kind of hit that you get. I, I you know, we, whatever addiction happens to be, whether it's you know um, tech. Uh, which I, I'm a bit addicted to tech, and you get that rush of enjoyment, um, or um, it's a, you know, Cadbury's Dairy Milk, 79% sugar. You get that instant, immediate gratification, right? Yeah. So the dopamine pathway is the addictive pathway, um, as distinct from the serotonin pathway, which is the happy pathway. Right, okay. Um, and so you get this spike of dopamine, it comes up and you feel great, and it goes down, and then you feel a bit disappointed. And you rinse and repeat. And it's, it is the equivalent of a drug addiction. Yes. So that's going on inside your brain. And the whole way that these mechanisms work inside the brain is if you keep spiking a pathway, the brain will just chew down its sensitivity. Um, because it's not healthy for these receptors to be firing continually. So basically, that's like you're saying about the drug. You have to have more of the drug to get the feeling. Yeah. And in this way, the same thing, the stimulation is yeah. almost like, well, we've done that now. What else you got? Or, yeah, okay. Yeah. It's just the same. I'm sure that everyone knows, everyone in their life has encountered an alcoholic. Mm. How much alcohol do they drink, have to drink to get drunk? Yeah. Way more than you and I. Yeah. Because the body's got adapted. Right. Okay. So that's what's going on from a sort of uh, neurochemistry by in, in, in uh, neurology uh, point of view, those kind of uh, pathways. But then you've got two other things going on. One is the effect of the seed oils and one is the effect of the sugar. So I kind of think we should separate the two. Okay. So your entire bloodstream at any one time is designed to have one single spoonful of sugar in it. Which is about five grams, right? It's about five grams, right. If you've got two spoonfuls of sugar in your entire eight pints of blood, you've got diabetic type two diabetes. Oh, that's the distinguishing factor because your body can't process it. Right. So the, the point is that one additional sugar lump in your entire bloodstream is the difference between having type two diabetes and not having it. Wow. And this is a principle we call homeostasis. And homeostasis is the very tight control of the internal environment of the cell. 
So even the most primitive single-celled organism very tightly controls its internal environment. Now, human beings are highly complex multicellular organisms, so we have numerous different control mechanisms. But ultimately, it's about the same thing. It's maintaining homeostasis. And that could be the pH of your blood, your rate of respiration, your rate of oxygenation, all these different things. So the next thing is, well, okay, why do we feel it necessary to control our blood glucose so tightly? Why does it matter? Because we all know that blood glucose is a good thing. And the answer is that raised blood glucose is toxic. Right. And if you stand back and think about it, you know that. Do you know the single um, most common acute cause of admission of kids seven, eight and nine to NHS hospitals? Is it tooth decay or...? It is. It's tooth, extract, tooth extraction. Extraction, right, okay. Due to the rotting of their teeth with the sugar. God, I felt nervous then. I had to get that right. I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Grazed knees, no, broken like, arms. Well, that, yeah, yeah, you probably think it would be, probably, you'd probably say, oh, I don't know, COVID infection, right, right now? Yeah, yeah. Not at all. And we also know this is true. I mean, I, I have to highly recommend one of the best and most emotive TED Talks I've ever seen um, is Jamie Oliver's TED Talk on sugar. Oh, right. I haven't seen that. I'll have to check it out. If you are not in tears at the end of it, then you have no soul. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> and he comes on the stage with a wheelbarrow of sugar, empties it on the stage and says, this is how much sugar you eat in a year. Wow. And he talks about the number of limbs that the NHS is now amputating as a result of type 2 diabetes. Mm. And the point is that if your sugar is out of control, you literally start to rot. Now, this is what I've heard. This is horrific, right? So that sugar is effectively like fertilizer for bacteria, isn't it? And for infections that eat off the sugar, right? Yes. So that's part of it. But literally, it's a, it's a cellular toxin. So you end up with macrovascular problems. So the, the large, the arteries and the heart, microvascular problems, you know, to the kidneys, the backs of the eyes, you end up with neuropathies. So you can no longer feel your feet. So this is why we have to be so careful with diabetic feet. Mm. Because when they're uncomfortable or their shoes are too tight, they don't feel it. Wow. And then they're much, much more susceptible to infection. And they're much less able to heal. So all these things are going on. So that explains homeostasis. And that explains the effect of sugar toxicity. But to want to go to the next layer, yep. the, the insulin response, right? So your body, your body is so clever at homeostasis. It wants to, everything to be so balanced that it yep. has certain strategies to try to deal yes. with the problem, doesn't it? Exactly right. Which makes a problem in itself after a while because we keep the problem going for the body. Exactly right. So then the principal hormone, and it's far more complicated, there's always multi-layers of all of this stuff, right? Um the principal hormone that controls blood sugar is insulin. And we know that. So in type one diabetes, where people can't produce any insulin, these people are incredibly thin and they also have a very high basal metabolic rate. Because the other in thing that insulin does is it reduces your basal metabolic rate. And we know that when we give type one diabetics insulin, they put some weight on, and that's a healthy thing. But also, their base of, people don't know that their basal metabolic rate also reduces. So just explain what that means, sorry. A metabolic rate reducing. Your metabolic rate. So if you're literally doing nothing, lying in bed, not moving, having a really lazy 24 hours, you will still consume a lot of energy. Right. And, the lo uh, and quite a lot of that energy is actually consumed by the brain. So the brain is a massive consumer of, of energy. Yeah. Actually, probably the second largest consumer of energy is the microbiome, the bugs in your gut. And whether we're going to have time to talk about the microbiome today or whether that's a discussion for another day, but it's, it's an important thing to know. So your basal beta metabolic rate is the amount of energy you will use just being. And this pr also explains why Asim is quite right, Asim Malhotra, when he says you can't outrun a bad diet. Because it's actually, so just hanging around, not doing very much, you and I are probably going to burn, let's say, 1,800 calories. Right. Okay. And on a normal day, just moving around, doing the normal stuff of life, 
we might burn another three or 400 calories. So we might be up to say 2,400 calories. And if you then do a 10K run, you might burn another six or 700 calories. Right. So your 10K run would just about cover the amount of calories um, in, a, um, in a muffin. Okay. So what we tend to do is exercise and reward ourselves by eating high carb food, which more than outweighs the exercise. That's the thing, isn't it? Someone told me once about a Mars bar and said, there's a PE teacher actually, and he said, you know, you'd have to run a marathon or so just to try to earn these calories you've just ingested to try and burn them off. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, shocked. I was like, that, yeah. that far, really? Yeah, it, it'd probably give you, I wouldn't say a marathon, but probably probably 10K would be a Mars bar. Wow. Um, so exercise is a really, really healthy thing. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. Exercise has huge cardiovascular benefits. It reduces your diabetes risk, and it's incredibly good for mental health. But it's not the, there's not, not the solution, is it? Losing weight. Right? Yeah. yeah. So this eat less, move more paradigm just doesn't work. So just want to go on that one for a second then. What about, for instance, the calories, uh, calorie in, calorie out thing? Now, just just if that was completely accurate and true and we were like a machine when it was a mathematical thing, surely we could use that formula to the point where we had zero fat on our body, right? According to that for- formula. Yeah. So let's go back to the fundamentals then. So the, what's a calorie? A calorie is the amount of energy it requires to, to, to warm up one mil of water by one degree centigrade. That's physics. Yeah. Right? Physics, of course, applies to our bodies, but we're not physics. We're biology. The body has no receptor for calories. The body doesn't recognize calories. So although it's by definition true that if you're putting more, if you're putting weight on, you're overall taking in more energy than you're burning. And it's also true that if you're losing weight, you're burning more calories than you're consuming. To oversimplify that and say, well, just move more and eat less doesn't work. Yeah. Because of all the complexity of biology, and there are numerous ways by which the body can either burn more calories or burn fewer calories, completely separate to the amount of energy that you move that you burn by moving for example the microbiome burns a lot of the calories right if you're in ketosis so you're fat burning the body actually wastes calories because it generates more heat right right it's just the same thing the best an example i might give i think zoe harkham uses this example when you heat a kettle up right and it's steaming as soon as you turn the gas off why doesn't this water stay at boiling point because the energy escapes, right? Right. Yeah. It's not a perfect closed system. Yeah. And even while you're heating the, the even while you're heating the water through the kettle, it's some of that leaving. energy is going to heat the metal up of the kettle, and some of that is going to warm the atmosphere. Right. Because you haven't got a perfect closed system. Right. I see. Multiply that complexity a thousandfold, and you've got a human body. Yeah. And it's, so not, it's not, not that easy to explain, is it? So that insulin response, so we're talking about the sugar before we go yeah. to the vegetable oils, um, the seed oils. So that, uh, that insulin then, that response is what our body's doing to try and save itself. And of course, the insulin resistance, although I know you could probably explain that in a lot more detail than I can, the yeah. insulin resistance that follows, I found this was the most fascinating, I think, revelation I've had in my whole life, that insulin resistance is something that's happening and that in many ways, my my issues with weight in the past have been a biochemical response to the, to the chemistry set that I am and I'm putting in different chemicals into my body. Yeah. So if you spike your blood sugar, the body will then release insulin. The insulin will remove the excess sugar from the bloodstream and it will go to the liver. And then the body has, it's then stored as energy because you're taking an excess energy at that point. And the body has two forms of energy storage, glycogen and fat. And your glycogen stores are primarily in the liver and in the muscle. And one of the huge, many benefits of maintaining muscle mass is that you get a bigger glycogen store and it kind of gives you a buffer against diabetes. What is glycogen exactly? I mean, I imagine in some ways it's the breakdown of carbohydrates, sugars and water into an energy source. But what actually is that stuff at a sort of molecular level? What is glycogen? Um, it's a form of stored sugar uh, in, in a readily available source. 
right. that you could easily tap into and use. Right. So if you kind of think about um, a hybrid car, right? It's got the battery and the engine. Mm-hmm. And your traditional hybrid car, the battery will get you, what, 20 miles down the road? The car doesn't conk out, does it? At that point, if your battery's flat, your engine kicks in. Right. And by the same token, you've got two forms of energy storage in the body. You've got your glycogen store, which is your short-term energy store. And then you've got your fat store, your adipose tissue, which is your long-term energy store. Right. Your glycogen stores are limited, about 2,000 calories. So once they're full, if you then keep chucking more sugar into your bloodstream, the excess energy can no longer be stored as glycogen. It's now stored as fat. And that is why it's sugar that makes you fat, not fat that makes you fat. Right. So, so in that case, if you then use up your glycogen, that's the kind of the keto flu, I suppose. The, the symptoms are quite can can be quite tough yeah. going from that. Um, but why is it then that people who are kind of running on glycogen only always have this sense of hunger and wanting to refeed yeah, yeah. because they're not actually satiated, are they? Even though they might have a lot of fat stores, they can't access it, can they? Well, it was interesting. So I was giving a talk the other evening about um, to, to a group of people and one of the guys there was a marathon woman, slim guy. And he said, yeah, but um, I have to have more sugar in because my body has to have sugar. And uh, I, after about 20K, I run out of energy. I literally stop. So I have to have more sugar, don't I? And, and I, I die. And I said, okay, so let me go back and explain this. If you're, let's say by and large, for each kilometer that you run, you use 100 calories. After 20 kilometers, you lose 2000 calories and you've emptied your glycogen stores. If you're fat adapted like I am, you then just start burning your fat. But if you're one of these people who never uses their fat stores, they come almost become like fossilized. And it's a bit like back at our Toyota Prius. If you never start the engine, eventually it just won't start. Right. You'll get right. to the point where your batteries run out and the car conks out because your engine's just not firing. Yeah. If you haven't serviced it. And you've got cobwebs in it. Used. It's not being used. Yeah. So if you only ever drive 10 miles and you only ever tap, tap, you know, turn on the battery, you never turn the engine on, eventually it won't start. And the same thing's true. So for this guy, because he couldn't burn his fat stores, he'd get to the end of his 20K and hit the wall like the marathon runners do. And I've only ever had that happen to me once. It was back in the days before I was fat adapted. And I went on a long walk and I hadn't eaten very much. And it is horrible. I mean, literally, I, it's I, probably the most unwell I've ever felt. You feel wow. dreadful. You feel shaky and you feel your eyes start to swim and your legs turn to jelly. So I said to him, OK, so that's the story of the sugar. I said, but let's assume you were fat adapted so you could burn fat, right? So now you're not running, your body can run on one of two shawls, but not both. So now let's suppose you're uh, a, a keto guy and I'm not, I'm not particularly keto, but it's, it's an option. So I don't want to be giving out this message that I'm slavishly keto. I'm not, I'm not yeah. actually slavishly anything. So I said, one pound of fat is about three and a half thousand calories. So I said, if you ran the whole marathon fasted, fat burning, at the end of your marathon, you'd be one pound lighter. And you wouldn't have had to take energy, any energy in at all. That's incredibly it's efficient. Isn't having it? a light bulb moment, but it was so far from what he intuitively thought he knew. He just yeah. couldn't reconcile it. And he, he went away and he sent me a few emails after and said, I really need to understand this. That's amazing. Doug the, Reynolds came on the show and he he's a long distance runner. He used yeah. to run 55 mile marathons uh, in South Africa. Yeah. And he said he was doing that all on glycogen stores, really. So he was carb loading to the point yeah. of having supposedly so much, but it's yeah. getting harder and harder. And then after a while, he was turning up to the race feeling awful before he even started. Yeah. Because he realized you can't go like that forever, can you? You can't have this short term release of fuel only and have so much of it. You never tap into your own stores, which he was putting weight on as well. The, the, um, have you been following these guys, Zero Five One Hundred? Yes. In fact, that was the same week that we were doing our group fast on this show with uh, about 10 of us or so, that they were doing exactly the same thing yeah. with, with James Cracknell uh, so doing that run. Yeah. For any of your listeners that haven't looked at it, just Google 05100 and it will disabuse you of all your misconceptions about this. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. So, OK, so um, so we fill up. We first filled up our glycogen stores and now they're full. 
Now we're still bringing in the sugar, we're still spiking our insulin, and now we're starting to fill our fat stores up. Now our fat stores are comfortably full. And it's a bit like blowing up a, a party balloon, right? The, the art of blowing up a party balloon is to stop puffing into the balloon before it goes pop, yeah. right? Yeah. And then you tie it. And if you, kept, if you get one more puff and it goes pop, the, your adipose tissue isn't that different, really. So if you keep pushing more and more fat into the fat cell, the fat cell says, hey, thank you, Mr. Inchel, I'm full now, no more thanks. And if you keep chucking more insulin into your bloodstream, uh, sugar into your bloodstream, you'll have more insulin and it will be forcing the last bit of fat into the fat cell. And the fat cell becomes resistant and now you're insulin resistant. So now you need more insulin to get the fat into the fat cell. And eventually your fat cells just can't hold the fat and they literally start to go pop just like your party balloon. So all of a sudden you've got the, you know, what would have been the contents of your inflamed, not very healthy fat cells cascading outwards. So now, now you're not just fat, you're inflamed. Wow. And of course that's where you get the health complications, the other issues. By the way, just a bit of a side note. I remember, God, 20 years ago now, seeing a documentary about liposuction. And yeah. this surgeon was saying people will quite often come in and they think fat is just like it is on the side of a piece of meat. It's just sat there in your body. They don't appreciate that. Actually, it's these little fat cells that are holding the fat. So what we're doing is we're sucking the cells out. But I just only realized when you're talking, if you did that to your body, and yeah. then, of course, you don't change your diet and you're still eating the sugar and all the rubbish, but you've got fewer fat cells. All you're doing is kind of speeding up that process of inflammation, right? Well, it's interesting. So you might think that liposuction would reduce diabetes, but it doesn't because it doesn't change the insulin resistance. Yeah. In fact, there's just fewer cells to deal with the problems. Yeah. So, wow. um, so essentially, the, way I, the other way I explain it is this kind of a journey. So we know or we know the symptom type two diabetes, don't we? And we know it's associated with obesity, but not caused by obesity. Well, so, you say that, but some people don't think that, do they? That's a weird thing. There is a bit of a paradigm that obesity causes type two diabetes yeah. rather than them both being symptoms of the same problem. Right. So if you keep, obviously, if you keep bringing more energy into the body than you're using, you'll put weight on inevitably. Um, and if you keep spiking your blood glucose, you'll keep spiking your insulin. And the way I kind of explain it is if you imagine you've got a lake of sugar and a dam of insulin, mm -hmm. if you look from over here, it all looks pretty good, doesn't it? So this is just, just to describe for those who are not be able to see this. Yeah. So you've got your arm up like a dam. Okay. Yeah. On one side, you've got the, the reservoir of sugar. Reservoir of sugar. And you're looking from the other side. And you're like looking on the dry side. Yep. Yeah. Just like, a, just like a dam of water, right? Yeah. If you put some more sugar into this lake, you can just build a higher dam. Yeah. Other side looks fine. And you can probably keep doing that for 20 years. Right. Um, so I think about diabetes as a 20 to 25 year journey. Right. At this point, you're hyperinsulinemic. So you've got high levels of insulin, but we don't measure insulin in the NHS. No health systems do. You just only made me realise something. Why the hell don't we? Because in a way, we might be monitoring their blood sugar level and saying, it's actually not too bad. You're getting it under control. Precisely. And that is why HbA1c is such a bad test. Because yeah. it measures your blood glucose control, but it doesn't measure insulin. And your body's getting knackered fighting this, blood, keeping this blood sugar down. You're being told, well done, you're doing a great job. And your body's saying, I can't do this any longer. I can't do this any longer. I never quite appreciated it in that way. But anyway, so just tell me a bit more about this dam. So it's going to break eventually, you've right? You've got this dam and you've got this lake of sugar. Yeah. And you keep building a higher dam and you keep building a higher, uh, you keep chucking more sugar in the lake and everything on the other side of the dam, which is your HbA1c test, yeah. looks fine. At a certain point, your insulin can't hold back the sugar anymore. So you, little bits of sugar start trickling over the top. And that's pre-diabetes. Right. So that's the point at which your insulin isn't quite any more coping. Right, right. So you're still hyperinsulinemic. You've still got a ton of insulin, but it can't quite hold back the sugar. I see. Okay. And eventually the dam collapses. And the excess sugar comes cascading over the top of the dam and it, the only way the body can get rid of it now is in the urine. I see. And the way they used to test for, the, uh, for type 2 diabetes before we had these more sophisticated tests, you would taste the urine and it would be sweet. Yeah, I've heard that. 
Now that type two diabetes comes on very quickly. So over two or three days, you have this raging thirst that you can't slake because associated with all the water is your, uh, with the, associated with all the loss of sugar in the urine is all the water. So you have this un, un, unslakeable thirst. Right. But actually that process has gone on for maybe 25 years in the background. So it's really a few days you'd have the symptoms that strong, that quick. Yeah. So it really is like a dam. You probably haven't felt your absolute best for five or 10 years, but type two diabetes comes on very quickly. And what's gone on in the, in the background, the latest studies show this. When I was a, a you know, trainee pharmacist, we were told that the beta cells burn out. In other words, the cells in the pancreas that produce the insulin burn out. Then I was told the, pancling, the pancreas gets gummed up with fat and that's the cause of the problem. Actually, the science appears to show what actually happens is that this excess fat that the liver's producing, it can't be exported anymore into the fat cells because they're full. So now you get the fat burning, building up inside the liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Right, yeah, yeah. And inside the pancreas. Right. So, what, so then what happens is the fatty milieu, remember the, the pancreas doesn't just house the beta cells that produce the insulin, it also houses the alpha cells that produce the glucagon. Right. And everything that insulin does, glucagon does the reverse. So insulin will reduce your blood glucose and make you store energy. Glucagon will increase your blood glucose and make you burn energy. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's that balance. You're always, so the body is full of these sort of servo mechanisms. So the example I always give is like, when you want to remove your arm, one muscle is smoothly relaxing and one muscle is smoothly contracting to give you that nice smooth movement of the arm, right? And if you have a muscle spasm, your arm will be like this, all contorted. Yeah. And I think of diabetes as, as a kind of endocrine spasm. All of a sudden, over that uh, last period, the beta cells de-differentiate and become um, alpha cells. All of a sudden, you're producing more glucagon and less insulin. And those hormones have the antagonistic effect on each other. So all of a sudden, the whole thing flips on its head. Instead of insulin dominating and controlling your sugar, you've still got all the sugar, remember, but now yeah. you've got less insulin and you've got insulin resistance and more glucagon, and it flips. Oh, my word. So not only is the... Type two so the actual insulin production is almost impossible for the body because it's burnt out effectively. Well, no, Plus, it's still no. hyperinsulinemic, so you've still right. got too much insulin. Right. That intricate negotiated balance between insulin and glucagon can no, uh, flip up, flip over. If you if you imagine a tug of war, yeah, you've got 13 beefy guys at each end. And it, if they keep pulling really hard, it won't move very far, right? Yeah. What happens if you take one bloke off that end and put him on the other end? Yeah. All of a sudden, the whole thing moves. Right, I see. Okay. And in your body, you've got this natural and normal tug of war between insulin and glucagon, and all of a sudden, one guy's come from one end of the rope and gone on the end of the rope, and it flips. Wow. So in terms of what would happen to somebody before modern medicine, so say, for instance, we're talking about 120 years ago, yeah. and it's been a lot rarer then, wouldn't it? Like you said previously, type 2 diabetes is really well, much more really modern. Bad. It's a modern condition. So it, back in the Edwardian, the Victorian period, somebody has type 2 diabetes, the dam goes, uh, what would the chance of life expectancy be for that person without modern insulin and whatnot, without dietary change? Well, it's interesting because although the drugs, most of the drugs mimic the action of insulin. And therefore, it's just like chucking more insulin into the body. Right. You've got some who's hyperinsulinemic. They're producing excess insulin anyway in an attempt to control their sugar. What the logical thing, and this is where David Unwin is completely right, is take out the sugar. What the drugs do is they don't take out the sugar, they just add more insulin and try and jam yet more fat into your overloaded fat cell. And the evidence is they might control the sugar, but they don't really prolong life. Right, okay. They're not really a benefit. Now, to be clear, some of the newer, more modern drugs act in a different way and they do have a benefit. Metformin, actually, which is the oldest drug, has huge other benefits, but it goes way beyond the glucose control. Right. 
Um, some of the newer drugs work in a more sophisticated way. For example, they make you pee out the sugar and they work really well. And my logic is, okay, so I can either pee out the extra sugar by taking a drug or let me just think about this. Why don't I not take the sugar in in the first place? Yeah, yeah. And is this why you describe yourself as a pharmacist who gave up drugs? Because in a way you're trying to get to the root cause now, yeah. not, not treat the symptom of the root cause. Yeah, because we're treating symptoms, we're suppressing symptoms, and it would be fine if actually it was normalising life expectancy. It isn't. So, yes, the drugs are pretty good at controlling the blood sugar, but actually what do you want? What The, the acid test is... Does it increase my life expectancy and does it help increase my healthy life expectancy? No, it doesn't. Hmm. It just increases this metric called blood glucose, which isn't the most important metric. The most important metric is your insulin because it's the raised insulin that drives the metabolic syndrome. So we all know as health professionals that diabetes, dementia, cancer, cardiovascular disease and a host of other diseases are found in a cluster. All of that cluster is driven by the hyperinsulinemia, which is a response to this diet higher in sugar, higher in sugar and carbs. Wow. Can I just say, I know you want to talk about seed oils, and that's also fascinating, but do you mind if we skip to the microbiome? Because it's an area that I don't know much about, and I think it's, okay, it seems to me the science is now coming through a lot more, and there's stuff we're learning all the time about this. So I, I appreciate this conversation will be out of date in a year's time, I'm sure, but what you know so far, I'd love to know more about because that seems to be a huge part of our health that we don't really know about. And when you see good bacteria, bad bacteria advertised, mm. the actual knowledge about what's good and what's bad is pretty basic still, isn't it? We're still learning, aren't we? It's in its infancy. Um, if you're interested to follow this, I would the, the guy to follow is t uh, Professor Tim Spector. Right. And um, his, his original book, The Diet Myth, is absolutely brilliant. And okay. anything by him, you'll find him all over YouTube. Anything by him is excellent. What's interesting about Tim is he's a, he's a, he's a geneticist and he's got the world's largest cohort of identical and semi-identical twins wow. uh, at King's College, KCL. One twin will be happy, one twin will be sad. One will be fat, one will be thin, one will be happy, one will be unhealthy. Now, what, what is fascinating about identical twins is that both nature and nurture are identical yeah so logically they both be happy they both be sad right yeah they yeah. both be diabetic they need or neither of them will be diabetic why does one get type 1 diabetes and one doesn't yeah why does one get type 2 diabetes and the other one doesn't and he's been able to show that it's the microbiome it's the bugs in your gut that have a huge effect wow so in our small intestine we have two to three kilograms of bugs Fungi, viruses, eukaryotes, and bacteria. And the bacteria appear to be the dominant species. Right. And I think, or is, I think there are 100 trillion bugs in your gut. Well, that's a two or three grams. Is that how, is that how many bugs? Two or, three, wow. two, or three, two, or three, two or three kilograms. Oh, kilograms, sorry. Right. I think grams. Okay. And they consume a massive amount of your energy. And it also turns out that there's an area of the gut called the mesentery, which is directly innovated with fronds of brain tissue. All so right. They're starting, and the mesentery actually has its own heartbeat, and they're talking about it as a second brain. Wow. Wow. So there's a direct <laughs> link between your central nervous system and area of your gut. Wow. That um, expression, gut feeling, or I was gutted. Yeah, yeah, gutted, yeah. Things I was gutted. All, all cultures have that. It turns out it's true. So we know that the brain signals to the body. It turns out the gut, the gut signals back to the brain. That's amazing. It's also the case that I think 85% of your immune system is in the gut. And you've probably heard of serotonin, the happy hormone. And when people yep. are depressed, we give them drugs to increase their serotonin levels. Yep. If I told you that 95% of your serotonin isn't in your brain, it's in your gut, and it's generated by the bacteria in your gut... That wow. might surprise you. I didn't know that. So our happiness is directly linked to what we're eating, probably. Absolutely. And um, so if you kill those bugs off, you won't be such a happy bunny. Yeah. And is it possible to kill them off completely with, with certain foods and drugs and whatnot? Or is it or is there always a chance they can come back again? Yes, they can come back. But if you... So um, there are numerous ways. So the way I always, the example I always give, it starts at childbirth. 
actually it starts before childbirth, but it becomes very complicated. So this is a bit of an oversimplification. When a woman's pregnant, her microbiota revert to a more childlike state. Wow. And the reason is that as the baby exits the birth canal, it picks up the maternal microbiome. That's the seed microbiome. Yeah. If a baby's not born naturally, it doesn't get that benefit. Yeah, most of my children are cesarean section. We had we learned this, and so yeah, we 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 were kind of very aware of of what you're saying about the microbiome because my wife did a lot of research into that. Certainly. So mm. um, the example I always give is the Mexicans who are who are one of the fattest nations on earth, and it's just a cultural thing with uh, Mexican women. They don't do, like to give birth naturally. Oh, so a high proportion of cesarean section, do they? Yeah. So lots of valerians. Um, you know, you know where they say two posh to push. Oh, really? I wouldn't know those people. I don't mix in such circles. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point is that for cultural <clears throat> reasons, they don't give birth naturally and they have very high levels of elective cesarean. Right. They also have very high levels of obesity, type 2 diabetes. Also, as does America, right? USA has got very high cesarean rates as well. Yeah. And there's a very... Now, I realise that this correlation is not the same as causation, right? Yeah. But... It, these all these illnesses, the non the, the chronic diseases, the non-communicable diseases and autoimmune diseases track very, very closely with high levels of cesarean. So that's wow. so that's the first point. The second one is breastfeeding. So breastfeed milk isn't sterile, it's got 200 bacteria in it. And the baby gets the benefit of the breast milk, and of course, it also gets the benefit of the bacteria on the breast and the nipple. Mm-hmm. So a baby that's neither born naturally than, or, nor is it breastfed doesn't get the opportunity for the natural seed microbiome. Right. The latest study in Mexico is when the baby's born by caesarean, they get a maternal tampon and they wipe the eyes, ears, nose and mouth of the baby to reseed the natural microbiome. And it seems... Yeah. To- I've heard this. I've heard this. So isn't it also true, though, that the there's a lot of stuff in uh, breast milk that a baby doesn't actually digest and they were confused by this and actually realised it's because it's feeding the, the gut uh, bacteria Absolutely. and that we've evolved to do that? Yeah. Which then, you can never recreate, can you? You can never recreate that in a lab with an artificial milk. And I know that can't. some people yeah. can't breastfeed and obviously there's no judgment at all. I totally appreciate you can't necessarily. Um, and it's easy for two men to talk about this topic. I know that. But just in terms of the science, that is incredible, isn't it? And then the next problem is the use of antibiotics. So when I was training, when someone got ill, you used to hit them with the, the broader spectrum antibiotic that you could, because you just wanted to kill everything, including the bad bugs. Yeah. And we now know that that's the absolute reverse of a healthy strategy, and we're much less keen to use antibiotics. Yeah. The yeah. repeated use, particularly of broad spectrum antibiotics, it's a bit like if you imagine that your gut is uh, the ecosystem of your gut is, is like a <coughs> like any other ecosystem. You get like a form of deforestation. Right, right. I see. You keep a dose of broad spectrum antibiotics damage the microbiome. Right. The community, and then the last one is your sort of standard American diet, full of foods which are highly preserved, have got an, an unlimited shelf life, and no bugs will ever grow on it. And no bugs can live yep. off it. So all those things together destroy the microbiota. So the microbiota is the community of the bugs in the gut. And the microbiome is their genetic material. And here's another interesting little fact to you. We, human beings have about 22,000 genes. So we think we're quite posh, right? If I said to you we've got fewer genes than a, an earthworm or a fruit bat, would that surprise you? Yeah, it would. I feel like I've been shortchanged. <laughs> we don't have, to have that many. More, we don't actually have that many more genes than a banana. Oh I mean, well. Not. So how come Homo sapiens, human beings, are such a successful species? It's because we've been able to um, utilize the uh, genetic material in our gut, and the genetic material, the microbiome in the gut, outweighs the human genetic material by about a hundred to one. Wow. So, so we're only about 1% human at best. I've heard this before where someone said if an alien came to from this pla- from like another planet, they would actually see us as like a walking menagerie or yeah. some kind of like zoo effectively. And they'd look at us and think there's a very interesting organism of different creatures all working together there. There's yeah. not this sense of just one one species or one one 
individual animal there's yeah. actually all this together so in a way that's a really that complex story of life is the basis for all animals right i suppose yeah, yeah. We, we all without that microbiome none of us would have been able to evolve to the level where we are now absolutely right so um the next part of the story is this thing called leaky gut which is dismissed but it's absolutely the case so when you eat food you imagine the food being inside you but it's not really, it's more or less in a hollow drain pipe in one end and out the other. Yeah. And what determines your ability to absorb the micronutrients from the food, but ignore the bad stuff, the bacteria and toxins, is the integrity of the lining of the gut. Right. And the integrity of the gut lining is maintained by the microbiota. Okay. A colony of bugs. Right. So if you damage that lining of the gut, several things happen. One is that the cement between the gut lining cells starts to break down and then the cells and start to, cells start to break down. I From see. That, those two things. One is your ability to absorb micronutrients becomes less. So you end up with malabsorption. But also your ability to reject the bad stuff becomes less. And now those toxins can get directly into the bloodstream. I see. Right, okay. They likely don't kill you. But you'll then start up, start up inflammatory and, and immune processes. I see. That probably oh, explains why we've got in this huge growth in autoimmunity, autoimmune diseases. Think about it. Is evolution, two million years of evolution, so stupid that you'd start becoming, you know, um, digesting your own gut and becoming immune to yourself? Yeah. Yeah, and why course. don't we see this in the Hasda tribes? Why are these new diseases? So just as all these other diseases I've talked about, the diabetes, um, the cancer, the dementia, all track together over the last 120 years, so do all these autoimmune diseases. They're also new diseases. This is incredible. You know what, Graham? I feel like I've just, my brain's like throbbing from the amount of stuff I've just learned just then. We just passed an hour and I'm just thinking, you know, can you come back another time and just talk more? Because there's so much more to learn on this. And I, I kind of feel like it's only right to talk about the solution as well, right? Because, you know, I, I don't know if we've got time for it now, but basically that is this, that's the state of our health as nations in the Western world, isn't it? Um, you know, my children have allergies, and, you know, I feel really terrible about that. The basis there in section makes a connection there. Um, and there's so many things I think as a parent I want to do to get right for them now to give them the best chance in life. And it seems to be there's probably a lot of parents in that situation and also us as individuals thinking about ourselves. So just just in a nutshell, and that's very difficult, I know, what yeah. advice would you give for somebody today listening now to make a change for the better? Yeah, so I can get it in three words, which is what we say in the public health collaboration eat real food so Perfect. It, it you know it, it, it at its simplest because it's always a bit more complex that than that for the individual i knew you're going to say that because everything you've said so far is more complex than at first you realize and that's yeah. that's perfect you know we're all striving for simple explanations you know whether it's you know get brexit done or you know all these things we, we always want simple solutions yeah yeah um, to complex problems you know, and we have take, we take this reductionist approach in medicine. We tend to take this reductionist approach. Actually, everything is always infinitely more complicated than you first think of. Yeah. Um, much as I love the low carb community, it's always more complicated than simply eating low carb. Yeah. Being, you know, if it was as simple as that, then there are plenty of low carb communities, but they still have their problems. So it's always more complicated than, than one single thing. And that is why in the Prolongevity program, we don't offer one size fits all solutions because they work for a percentage of people, but you know, human beings are complex and you have, to, you have to think about for an individual, where does that complexity lie? So tell um, us about your program, what you do then, because this is yeah. really interesting, so right? Just at, at its simplest, eat real food. Um, I, I love the way Asim Malhotra puts it. So there's this whole thing called the Nova classification of foods. And there are four different classifications with increasing processing. And the most uh, processed foods are Nova classification four. Right. And you can, you can look up, uh, your listeners can look up the Nova classification foods. It's quite a good classification. Yeah. The way I love the way that Asin tells it, which is if you turn over the pack and there's more than five ingredients, some of which you've never heard of, put it back on the shelf. Yeah. Because if you pick up a pack of broccoli, it's just got broccoli in it. Or steak. Right, yeah, but here's here's the rub, right? So um, 
most weekdays I mow mad. I, I, I eat one meal. And generally, I, there's a little local Tesco's up the road, and I'll go and buy two or three different salads, whatever they've got on offer, basically. And I chuck them in a huge bowl, and I'll put some seeds over the top, mixture of different seeds, and I'll put some olive oil and some balsamic. And that's kind of, and that's huge, right? So this idea that when you're on a diet, you have to sort of push around two pieces of lettuce around a plate. I tell you, I eat a huge mound of food. But the point about it, and this is probably a discussion for another day, it's not high in calories, but it's really high in nutrients. Yeah. And actually nutrition is based on micronutrients. And we talk about, again, it's an oversimplification. We talk about the macros. I obsess about the micros. Yeah. So that's my lunch. And one day I'll have tin salmon. The next day I'll have tin tuna. The next day I'll have an avocado. The fourth day I have a chicken breast. Right. Okay. What can possibly go wrong? So I flip over the pack of the chicken breast one day and I'm thinking, I don't believe it. It's got sugar and rapeseed oil in chicken breast. Wow. Why? Oh, why is it where? Well, the answer is this. The sugar isn't there for flavor. The sugar's there. It's a humectant. It maintains the moisture of the product. Right. Why is the seed oil there? It's a preservative. <clears throat> so it means that they can extend the, health, the, the, the shelf life of the chicken. So all of a sudden, your healthy chicken breast has become ultra-processed food. Yeah, yeah. You could yeah. not make it up. It's ridiculous, isn't it? So it's really sad. The other sad. thing I say to people is they call them they call them vegetable oils, but they're not vegetable oils. They're seed oils, but they call them vegetable oils because it sounds healthier. Yeah, yeah. I Nothing think you're right. healthy about these things. So, you know, at its simplest, eat real food. Ignore the front of the pack because it's marketing bull. Yeah. Always look at the back of the pack. If it's got more than five ingredients, some of which you've never heard of, forget it. And if it's got anything that says seed oil uh, or vegetable oil, it's processed. Just avoid it. And maybe next time we can talk through the what goes on scientifically with the seed oils and how those are also tracked with all this illness. And it explains also why just looking at the carbs isn't only half the story. And the story is that the carbs, processed carbs and, and processed seed oils go hand in hand together over the 120 years. Wow, there you go. That's a that's a bit of a taster there for next time. So, um, Graham, how can they connect with you? What's the best way to find you on uh, social media, on the internet, etc.? So, um, I tweet at Graham S. Phillips. That's G R A H A M S. Phillips with two L's. Um, and um, if you just if you search Graham Phillips pharmacist, uh, I'll come up. And then our website is longevity. So it's pro longevity. Basically, it's longevity with pro in front of it. Right. Or Twitter, it's pro underscore, P-R-O underscore longevity. Fantastic. And I know you're going to do some stuff with the CMA Hotra soon, aren't you? So uh, is it the next week or so you're going to be no, making we've done a... something? So um, right. Asim was on my blog recently. Yeah. Um, and you'll find that again, if you follow my tweets or you follow Asim's tweets, you'll see that we had quite a good conversation about all of this. And yes, Asim and I actually, we both feel um, for both our professions that we need to educate. So I went back, as I was saying at the start, nurses, dentists, optometrists, pharmacists, doctors have no education or almost no education in nutrition, sleep um, and exercise. So we're both passionate about changing the educational agenda for our professions. And um, in a couple of weeks, Asim and I are doing a joint session for a, a large group of GPs. It's the Wessex uh, LMC. So we're starting to do, provide Essex free of charge educational uh, initiatives for our colleagues to educate them on all of this stuff so that we can grow this. Because if we want to change this paradigm, we need to change the paradigm of understanding of health professional education and the way we all practice. Amazing. That's great stuff. You know what? I know I'm going to see you around uh, in the next few years with lots more things coming out. It's very exciting. And uh, yeah, really educational. Thank you so much for your time today, Graham, and coming on to UK Low Carb. No, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'd be delighted to come back and, and, and continue the story. Excellent. Have, have me. <laughs> Cheers, Graham. Take care. You too. Bye now.